So take me back. When did you have your first drink? I had my first drink when I was 16, and it was like a total spiritual experience. In that moment, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And that became my solution in that moment. We were waiting for my dad to pick us up, and I peed in my pants, waiting for him to pick us up. And the next morning, my friend stayed over. We were violently hungover. And she said, I'm never drinking again. And I was like, let's go. Like, I was ready to do it again. What was the final time that you drank? What was that like? I don't remember it. So the last couple years were pretty bad because I also was addicted at that point to benzos. So like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, um, Mm anti-anxiety medication, and Adderall. So it was all kind of working in concert. That's the thing about addiction and alcoholism. I think that's one of the most insidious parts of it. And that like everybody else can see it, but you have to see it yourself. So when I ultimately got sober in the end, like I was ready. You know, I didn't know like how I was going to do it and what it was going to look like, but I knew that if I drank or used again, I would die. My name's Mimi Bouchard, founder of Superhuman, the transformational app that helps you become your future self so that you can finally start attracting more joy, abundance, health, wealth, and love into your life. And that's also my mission on this podcast. Meet people whose lives have been transformed in big and small ways, but always for the better. They tell me how they did it so that you can too. Today on the podcast, Ariel Laurie's extraordinary journey from L.A. party girl to radical self-care expert. Did I drive? Yeah. Yes. Okay, nice. Yeah. All right, what kind of driver are you? What kind of driver am I? That's an interesting question. Out of curiosity. I don't know. It always tells a lot about like, a person. Like, am I aggressive or like... Yeah, you conservative driver, slow or fast and intense. It depends. I try to be patient. That's the key for driving in LA. When we were remodeling our house that we're in now, we were living in Malibu Mm -hmm. and it was like amazing, but I had to drive in. I mean, it was so much traffic, like four hours of traffic a day. And I was like tense the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is not healthy. Like I hit a rock bottom with that. And I just had to learn to leave early, let it go. And I actually love it. Like my car time, Ever since I was a teenager, it's like my time to like zone out, put Mm -hmm. on music, and it's just like me time. So you listen to music, not podcasts? Yes. Yeah. I'm a music car person. Do you sing in the car? Yeah. Yeah. Same. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I only sound good singing when I'm in the car or in the shower. Yeah. No no other time. (laughs) Now when I sing in the car, I'm like, I bet TikTok is listening to this. (laughs) I know. So funny. I feel like TikTok is always listening because my For You page, I'm like, how do you know this about me? Like, it's this really is bizarre. Yeah. It's really scary. <laughs> but I kind of like it at the same time because it's just hyper-targeted, but it's creepy. Yeah, I know. I've been getting a lot of, like, weird health disease videos, and I'm like, is there something that you know that I don't know about myself? No, <laughs> yes. that's, like, not good manifestation. I know, I know. I just hit not interested, and I'm like, no, you've got it good. all wrong. <laughs> yeah, so what does your feed look like otherwise? My feed right now is... God, what is it right now? I mean, I try not to scroll too much, but like once or twice a week, I feel like with TikTok, you have to know what people are doing and Mm -hmm. like what sounds are trending and everything in order to make content. So I have a lot of like 
morning routine, night routine, kind of healthy girl inspo, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. My friend always sends me like scientific TikToks Mm -hmm. and that's what I want to be on because it's so interesting. So I like them, but it never shows them to me. Yeah, yeah. Wait, you were going to (laughs) get, you were going to become a doctor years ago. When the pandemic started in 2020, I was reevaluating my life. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of people were. Mm -hmm. And I always had a dream of becoming a doctor my whole life. And obviously that got sidetracked when I was in my addiction. And when I got sober, I felt like I was too late. Now I think you can go back to school at any age, Mm -hmm. especially like, you know, grad school, med school, something like that. But I just kind of felt like that ship had sailed and I got into what I'm doing now. But when everything shut down, I kind of felt like, well, maybe this is an opportunity to change the trajectory a little bit. And so I went back to school. It's taking like five classes at a time. I never finished undergrad. So I had a long road mm. ahead of me. And for a year, I was so into it. And then I kind of just felt like, you know what? I think I proved to myself that like I can go back to school and I can take these hard classes, but I don't think that this is what I want for my life. And you're doing so well right now with your podcast. You're earning more than any doctor really. So (laughs) I think good decision. Thank you. And uh, it's very aligned. So you didn't grow up in LA, right? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Rhode Island. Nice. Yeah, I was going to say, if people don't know where that is, (laughs) it's in New England. Um, And it's, it was an amazing childhood. Very idyllic. Tell me about it. Well, I always say that it was like everything but the white picket fence. I grew up in a town that was really kind of small and quaint on the water. I went to private school. My dad was a doctor. My mom stayed at home. I have an older brother. We had a golden retriever. It was like all the things, but it was funny because I really resented it. I wanted to be the big city girl. I think that I just, I don't know. I think I was kind of just bottling up a lot of like anger and resentment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know why, but I felt like I just wanted to do the opposite of whatever my family was doing. And it was an excuse for me to like rage, I think a little bit, you know, being dissatisfied with with where I was. So now I'm like, that was the dream. I go back and I love it. And I've healed a lot of that stuff, obviously, by now. But yeah, it was... It was not where I wanted to be when I was younger, put it that way. It's so funny because I dreamt of the white picket fence upbringing when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. My parents were hippie artists and like so embarrassing when I was 10 years old to me. (laughs) You know, they're always the weird ones. So I dreamt of the white picket fence. So it's so funny to hear I think everybody just wants what they don't have. Yeah. You know, and I I have friends like that who grew up in the city and they were like, same as you. We wanted to be in this like cute town, suburb kind of thing. (laughs) So who had the biggest influence on you growing up when you Hmm. think back? Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) (laughs) In which way? I aspired to, so I, (laughs) um, I was like, definitely not anybody in my family. Like I, I think to that point. You loved pop culture when you were younger too. I think I just, yes, like it was the time of like Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, you know, stumbling out of the club and shopping on Robertson. And I was fascinated by that. And, uh, you know, again, I was like really dissatisfied with my life. And so I think I just like looked to these people um, who seemed to like have it all to me. And it's funny because like I kind of followed her down that path and when I got sober and I, I know I'm jumping ahead but I went to rehab like 
I chose the rehab based on where Lindsay Lohan went. So I was like very yeah, <laughs> kind of misguided in, in that time. But those were like the people that I looked up to. A lot of people did at that time. Yeah. So take me back. When did you have your first drink? I had my first drink when I was, I think, 16. So I went to private school, like I mentioned, and a lot of the kids there were really wealthy, and we were not. We were like middle class, upper middle class, but I really internalized that difference. You know, I felt less than, I felt Mm -hmm. inferior. I looked at these girls who had all these designer clothes and, you know, incredible cars and homes, and like they had these lives, and I felt like I didn't have that. And I think that back to that anger and resentment that I felt in my family, I think that was feeding a lot of that. Um, And at the same time, I was in a relationship that was very intense and very painful. And it was just kind of a perfect storm where, you know, I was feeling these emotions that I didn't have the skills to deal with. And I was just feeling really uncomfortable in my skin and feeling like I didn't fit in, even though I was popular, you know, on the inside, I felt different. And I'll never forget like the first night that I drank, I was with those girls and with my friends and I had a drink and suddenly I was like them and I didn't feel self-conscious and I felt comfortable in my skin. And it was like a total spiritual experience. And I didn't think about the boyfriend, you know, and the pain that I was feeling with that. And so in that moment, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And that became my solution in that moment. And I think I've told this story before, but we were waiting for my dad to pick us up and I peed in my pants waiting for him to pick us up. And the next morning, my friend stayed over. We were violently hungover. And she said, I'm never drinking again. And I was like, let's go. Like I was ready to do it again. And I think that's the difference between an alcoholic and like, you know, somebody who drinks occasionally or binge drinks. And I was off to the races after that. So from the moment when you were 16, when you experienced alcohol for the first time, it was this this feeling of this gives me what I'm looking for. Yeah, it felt like it was the missing piece. And I didn't realize how uncomfortable I felt until I felt comfortable. And it was just so profound for me. And obviously I didn't know that in the moment. I just felt like, oh, that was great. I want to do that again. And that kind of became my purpose, you know. And I really chased that for the next 12 years, like Mm -hmm. 10 to 12 years. And I tried going to college and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sustain anything because the drinking was so, it just had such a hold over me and it was my priority. And then where does cocaine come into the mix here? I know you're very open with Mm -hmm. drug use and we spoke about about it when I was on your show as well Mm because I have a past of partying and drug use as well. Where did Coke come into the mix here? How old were you when you first tried that? And and did you prefer one or the other? Tell me about your relationship with Coke, with alcohol. So with alcohol, it was a problem from the beginning because I blacked out a lot. Yeah. And I did really embarrassing things. And I like peed my pants or, you know, like peed the bed. Just, I was like, how how do I get this right to where I'm like still having fun, but I'm not having these side effects and these consequences. And I was introduced to Coke my senior year of high school. And that, again, another spiritual experience where I was like, whoa. Because like the alcohol kind of calmed the that inner narrative of just that self-centered 
kind of discomfort and fear. And then the Coke was like happy, like, and it balanced out the alcohol. So I realized I could do Coke and I could drink with everybody else and not be that like embarrassing girl. Um, because it quote sobers you up yes. too, right? And I was like, yeah. oh, I like figured out the formula. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I was like, oh, this is how you drink like a normal person. And so I didn't prefer one over the other. I preferred them both together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed them together because if I didn't have Coke when I drank, Forget it. Like, I got yeah. a DUI when I was, my parents put me in an outpatient program at a psych ward very early, like maybe a year after senior year. So I went to college, dropped out after a semester, and they were like, you're out of control. Like, you need help for this. I, of course, didn't think that there was any problem because I was doing what my friends were doing. And I went to this outpatient where they were drug testing me. So I did. I couldn't do cocaine. And... I went out one night with my friends, got completely blackout, got in my car to go to Taco Bell, you know, left a party without saying goodbye to anybody, like went to get my crunch wrap or whatever. And I got on the wrong side of the freeway and almost hit a cop head on. So that was... Do you remember any of it or are you blacked out? Complete blackout to the point where I woke up the next morning. My mom woke me up at like seven in the morning. You can go to jail? No. Well, they arrested me. My parents came to bail me out. No recollection of anything. And my mom came to wake me up. I had a raging hangover. And she said, get up, we're going to court. And I was like, court? What are you talking about? And she's like, you got a DUI. Like, we're going to court. I mean, just, and and no accountability, you know? I was just pissed that I got caught more than anything. And that was my first time that I went to rehab was right after that. Okay, so that was the first breaking point and Mm -hmm. the most prominent, or were there any others? No. So every few years, there was something. I went to rehab that time down in Florida. I ended up staying in Florida, and I really wasn't ready to stop by any means. I just kind of felt like I was doing it wrong, and I had to figure out, again, the right formula. And what was the next time? A couple years after that, I went to rehab again. That time, I blamed it on the boyfriend at the time. And I convinced everybody that I was a love addict, not an alcoholic or a drug addict. We're very manipulative. Um, And everyone kind of believed it because I think people, especially loved ones, they wanted to believe the best in me in the best case scenario. And I remember my parents coming for family week and they were like, well, maybe you are just a love addict. And I was like, yep. (laughs) And I got out and I picked up exactly where I left off and I was off to the races again. And then I came out here, ended up in detox. And then the last time that I went to rehab was when I ultimately got sober. What brought you to LA? Nothing. So I had been living in Florida I had a huge trauma there. My friend was murdered and I found her, which I think I just talked about for the first time on another podcast. But I went back to Rhode Island and my parents like didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do. I was so aimless at that point. Just so, I don't know what I was. You know, I was traumatized. I was aimless. I had nothing. I had no purpose. I had nothing that I wanted to do, nothing I was interested in because my 20s up until that point when people are normally in school and figuring out who they are and and who they want to be, like I was just partying, you know? And I thought that it was a choice that I was making for myself. Really, it was the only thing that I could do to not be in pain. And, And I accumulated this pain of like seeing my peers kind of passing me by and graduating school and going on to get jobs. And so there was a, just a lot of like shame and I just felt so stuck 
and I couldn't ask for help. So back to your question, I had a friend who lived out in Newport Beach and she invited me out and I thought maybe a vacation is what I need. So I came out here for what was supposed to be like a week and I never left, which was also my MO at that time. So you brought everything or you left I initially came, (laughs) no, so I came out for vacation. We went to Vegas. It's like the most embarrassing story. I won't tell the whole thing, but it was her and her boyfriend and her boyfriend's friend. In the two days that we were in Vegas, her boyfriend's friend and I decided we were in love. And Did you get married? No. (laughs) No, that would have been good. This is kind of anticlimactic now, but he lived in Palm Desert. So we left Vegas and I was like, I'm going with him. And my friend was like, are you sure? I was like, yes. I got there. I sobered up and I was like, oh, I'm actually not in love with you. Like, I don't even like you. And I had no way of getting back up to LA. It was like before Uber and all of that. I had no money. And he was like, well, I'm working all week. So I'm not like bringing you back. And so I was stuck with this guy and his roommates in Palm Desert. Anyway, I ended up getting back up to Newport and I was like, I like it here. Like, I'm not going to leave. And so I shipped my stuff out. So then you were in LA and you were not sober at this time, obviously. Mm -hmm. What was the final time that you drank? What was that like? I don't remember it. So, I mean, the last year really was... The last couple years were pretty bad because I also was addicted at that point to benzos. So like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, um, Mm anti-anxiety medication, and Adderall. So it was all kind of working in concert. You know, I would wake up and have to drink, sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and have to drink, and then wake up in the morning, have to drink, take Adderall, wait for that to kick in, drink a little more to level it off and then drink throughout the day, and then do coke at night, and then take Xanax. So it was just, like, exhausting, you know? Like, people say sobriety is hard. No, sobriety is, like, the easier, softer way for sure. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is a walk in the park compared to what I was doing and the way that I was trying to live before I got sober. Um, And I was having seizures, and I could never get the formula right. I never felt good at that point, you know, like alcohol and drugs weren't doing for me what they were doing for me before, but I couldn't ask for help again. Like I just, at that point had been through rehab and so many times and like, I just didn't see any way out. And so at the end, I was like in an empty apartment because my boyfriend at the time had moved out and I was delirious, snorting dust off the floor. I had a neighbor who was supplying me with drugs and I was like in and out of the hospital and just in a months long blackout. Wow. And then when you were in the hospital, was it the end now of the drinking? I went to the hospital one time. My parents did a wellness check and Mm -hmm. they came and they saw me through the window, face down, unresponsive, took me to the hospital. Somehow I got out. And when I got out, my parents were like, okay, we're getting on a plane because the doctors were like, she's going to die. And they showed up at my apartment and I opened the door and I fell instantly and had a grand mal seizure in that moment, which, you know, talk about like trauma. I mean, for my parents, I can't imagine what that's like, but I am so grateful for that because I kind of feel like I was struck sober. Like in that moment, I don't remember it. But everyone like witnessed my absolute rock bottom Mm -hmm. and I couldn't pretend anymore and I couldn't try to like manipulate anybody anymore. And I went to the hospital and I was there for a few days while they tried to stabilize me. Um, And that was when I was presented with 
three options of where I could go to rehab. One was in Malibu, and I was like, oh, I don't want anyone I I know to see me. You know, like I had no (laughs) friends or anything at that point. Um, But that's the delusion. And then they said I could go to a place in Arizona where I had already been. And the third option was a place called Cirque Lodge in Utah. And that's where Lindsay Lohan went and like Mary-Kate Olsen and these people. Well, if it works, it works. (laughs) My idols, I guess. And so- You chose there. I chose there, like totally still in a fog. I barely even remember it, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And it really helped. It did. I mean, I think people ask me, what was it about that place? And as much as I love it there- I don't think it was the place. I think I could have gone anywhere at that point. The difference was that I was ready. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the thing about addiction and alcoholism. I think that's one of the most insidious parts of it. And that's that, like, everybody else can see it, but you have to see it yourself. And you have to essentially self-diagnose yourself in order to get better. Like, I couldn't do it for anybody else. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it when other people wanted me to because for whatever reason, like I just could not see it. So when I ultimately got sober in the end, like I was ready. You know, I didn't know like how I was going to do it and what it was going to look like, but I knew that if I drank or used again, I would die. And like, I'm so grateful for having such a low bottom because now nine years later, I still believe that. Um, And I think it's harder for people who don't have that bottom where things are maybe going great for them, but they don't feel emotionally good. I mean, like you, like I know you're not totally sober, yeah, but pretty you much, just realized yeah. that it wasn't working for you. Doesn't and so work. you were able. It, yeah, it's, there was nothing positive about it. Yeah. Except for, you know, the initial excitement of having a pretty glass of wine in your hand. Mm-hmm. Everyone's, you know, drinking along with you. Yeah, so, it, you know, the only amazing thing really about it is that social connection. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you're around people that value you drinking as part of a connection, they're not the right people to hang around. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there there really aren't many plus sides to drinking, in my opinion. And we're seeing such a big jump to sobriety these days. A lot of people are saying, you know, alcohol is the new cigarettes. What do you have to say about that? Are you, why do you think this trend is coming about? I've seen it everywhere. So many people in our demographic are getting sober. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pretty neutral about alcohol. So I think that a misconception about people in recovery is that they like recoil when it comes to alcohol and are judgmental about it. And I don't, I I try to stay neutral, I think intentionally where I'm like, if it's working for you, like great, Mm -hmm. you do you. You know, I go out with my friends who drink sometimes, Mm -hmm. but they're not like, obviously alcoholics or binge drinkers. But I do think there is a trend towards sobriety. And I think that that just is kind of coming with people being more conscious about their choices and about their health and people wanting to live optimally. And I think that like oftentimes drinking doesn't really go along with that. So, I mean, I know like on another level, especially in California, drinking is down to begin with because of the legalization of marijuana. And so people are like, oh, well, that's more natural. It has less consequences. So Mm -hmm. I think that might be part of it. And then like another reason is because people are on their screens all the time. So that's like not a great (laughs) uh, reason for why drinking is down. But I think that there are a lot of factors that go into it. But I think when people are making the choice for themselves, it's just because we're more like cognizant of 
how we're living and how we want to live. And I think that that is kind of at odds with drinking for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So you talk a lot about getting sober and hitting rock bottom and you're so honest with your life and everything that's happened in it. Let's talk about staying sober. How have you stayed sober and what tools do you use in your everyday life to help you? Because it's such a complex thing and a lot of people, you know, struggle with it. I know you have mentioned before it's a spiritual practice for you, really staying in tune with yourself. So I'd love to hear you speak on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the main things for me initially were like a fellowship. I had to find other people who had been through or were going through what I was going through. And that is still one of the biggest components of my sobriety today. There's just magic when you're able to talk to somebody about mm -hmm. what you're experiencing. And, and the experience is so universal. Like the circumstances are different, but the feelings are the same. And I think with alcoholism and addiction, there's so much shame. And so when you can sit there and talk to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, me too. And you can laugh about like, the crazy parts and the peeing your pants and like the yeah. things that you do and and the feelings that you have there's so much freedom in that i think it kind of like loses its power when you can be honest with another person at that level and just share about like your struggles and your triumphs and what's really working for you and what's not so that is a huge component and then of course yeah the spiritual aspect like I was the absolute center of my universe <laughs> my entire life. I had no concept of anything other than myself. And not only is that exhausting, but, you know, I, I kept failing myself. Like, I had to learn how to believe in and rely on something else. And that's been an ongoing process. But again, like that desperation that I had when I was newly sober, I was like, I'll do anything. Like, I have to learn how to live differently. And so I was willing to, you know, try try to believe. And that was really all I needed initially. So, you know, I've been kind of a seeker, I think I would say, for the last nine years. And that's led me on a lot of different paths. But I, I have a rich spiritual life. And that's not to say I'm like enlightened or anything, <laughs> but it's like, it's such a huge part of my life and it's the foundation of my life and it's the most grounding part of my life. So yeah, that's, that's, I would say like the fellowship aspect and then that spiritual mm. aspect are the two. Yeah. And let's move into your relationship with wellness. Cause I know you started in this space with a very different relationship to wellness. You mm -hmm. openly talk about your dieting days and, you know, BBG days, did it too. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I'd love to know, you know, when it comes to body and dieting, how has that changed over the years for you? I hit a rock bottom with that as well. This is after being sober, right? Yes. Or getting sober. Yeah, yeah. So like the first year that I was sober, I really focused on my emotional health, my spiritual health, just getting that solid foundation in sobriety. And then, yes, like a year into sobriety, year and a half, I was like, all right, it's time to get healthy. And I didn't know anything about wellness at the time. I had kind of been living under a rock for 10 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when I was drinking and doing drugs, I did not care about wellness. It wasn't on my radar. I didn't care about my health, like anything. So I just was seeing what other people were doing on Instagram and 
BBG was huge at that time. And I looked at these women who were doing it and I was like, well, they have abs. So like they are healthy. Mm-hmm. That that became my... The goal. My, the goal, yes, to get abs. And, you know, I think that I was still kind of dealing with some of like the isms of the alcoholism without the alcohol. So I kind of got obsessive about that. And I did have an eating disorder and I had disordered patterns around that. My my really bad eating disorder went away when I got sober. Like I was bulimic and it was very extreme. And somebody said, when you straighten out spiritually, you'll straighten out mentally and physically. And she was right. And that kind of went away. But when I started pursuing health and wellness, I think some of those thought processes and and behavior patterns um, carried over. So it was kind of a, a journey, for lack of a better word. Like I was all over the spectrum and it got to the point where I was like doing BBG six days a week and counting macros. And again, that was a thing that a lot of women were doing at that time. And I thought that it was healthy because I thought, okay, I have these numbers and I can eat whatever I want within these guidelines. And so I thought it was like the anti-diet diet, diet, Mm -hmm. but it was so obsessive and it was so restrictive. And I got to a point where I was like, this is crazy. Like I'm packing my Tupperware to go to a restaurant and everyone else is like eating and I'm eating my macro meal. (laughs) And it consumed me. Like my thoughts were consumed with like, my meals and my workouts and everything. And I just hit rock bottom. Like I had had enough, you know, I was like, this is not, I don't think I got sober to like be living this way. Mm. And so I stopped doing everything, like back to ground zero. And that was kind of how I learned how to like be more intuitive when it came to food and movement. And I think just wellness in general. So now you eat completely intuitively. You have a great Mm -hmm. relationship with your body. You move because you love your body and you eat delicious, healthy foods. Do you feel really good in that right now? Yes, I feel really good in that. Um, You know, I I go through phases where like things that worked for me a few months ago don't work for me now. But yes, it's completely intuitive. Our, Our bodies, like we have this amazing ability to tune into ourselves and like know what we need to give ourselves. Even when it comes to food, like there are days where I'll open up the fridge and see something and be like, that's not going to agree with me today. And I just know it on some like very deep level. That's very intuitive though, knowing that something's not going to sit right with you. And I I feel the same thing often. You know, if a sugary smoothie in the morning, sometimes I'm cool with that and I can do it. Some other days, I'm not. Yeah, (laughs) So I think it comes from slowing down. And I think the reason so many people have a hard time with it, which I totally can relate to is not trusting themselves and not slowing down enough. Like, again, I was so grateful for that rock bottom that I had with all of the wellness stuff because it forced me to stop. And at that same time, I kind of got into meditation and I was like, oh, when I like stop running around and telling my body what it needs instead of listening to what my body needs and distracting myself with the macros and, you know, we're all constantly distracted now anyway. Like I could hear and I could feel my body's cues and we all have that. But I think it's so hard now to like slow down, 
unplug, stop, put the phone down, put the computer down, whatever it is, like even just for five minutes and sit there in stillness and be able to tune into that part of you. I love that. It's really all about distraction. The food thing. Not wanting to take that time and be alone with your thoughts. It's a new Mm -hmm. distraction, a new control mechanism, or it was for me. And, you know, the alcohol, the over-drinking, it's a distraction. And coming back to yourself and having time to just think about nothing and be, obviously, is so Mm -hmm. healing. And you've spoken about your journey with meditation as well. Mm-hmm. You do TM. Yes. How hard is that to do? 20 minutes of silence. <laughs> is it clearing your mind? Because you no. know me, I'm more about like the short visualization type of meditations, but this is yeah. very inspiring. So I'd I, love to hear about it. I think you would love it. And I would, I would be so curious to hear your experience with it. Yes. Initially, I was like 20 minutes in silence. Forget twice a day, once a day, once a week. Like No, I mean, that sounded so daunting to me. And the whole premise of TM is that it's effortless and it's not clearing your mind. I think that your mind, quote unquote, clearing is kind of a byproduct Mm -hmm. of it, but it's so simple. Uh, You know, you go to a TM center and you have this little ritualistic ceremony and you learn about the history of TM. And some people take issue with that. They're like, why do I have to pay and learn in this specific way? And um, the reason for that is because they don't want it to get diluted. Mm. So, you know, they'll scholarship you. Like when I went, there was a girl who couldn't pay. And so I let her sit in with my classes and she learned with me. And it's an honor system. So if somebody can't afford it, they'll you know, take whatever you can give and it's a nonprofit. But yeah, so you, you do four days in a row of like an hour a day and you're given a mantra and... You can't tell anyone, right? You can't tell anybody, no. And my husband and I joke, we're like, what if it's all one mantra? Like they only have one and everybody (laughs) that does TM has the same mantra, but we're all like, nope, can't tell you. So you've literally never told a soul. No. Wow. I feel like it's my superpower. Um, I love that. Yeah. That's so powerful. Yeah. And so... You sit there for 20 minutes, you think of your mantra, you lose it. I mean, I was this morning, I was sitting there meditating. I was thinking of my schedule for the day. I had song lyrics going through my head. (laughs) I had like all this random stuff, but that's what your brain does, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing about the mantra is that you think of it when you can and you're going to lose it. And then you remember, oh yeah, my mantra. Sometimes, you know, you're doing songs in your head for 10 minutes before you remember the mantra but you just come back to it. And I heard the analogy of TM, like what it does to your brain. It's like doing the laundry on your brain. So we accumulate all of the stress and just stuff throughout the day. And when you do that, it's just kind of cleansing. And you actually do have like physical twitches Mm -hmm. and these outer stress releases. And you also have it internally. So I just find it to be the most calming Sometimes, sometimes it's like, as you know, some some meditations are better than others, I guess, or they're all good, but sometimes you feel it more than you do other times. When I do it consistently, I always do the morning. I don't always do the afternoon because it can be really hard, but when I do it consistently, it affects every area of my life. 
All right, you know that I love my rituals and routines. I love feeling good in my life. I love putting good habits in place and being my ultimate self. One of the brands that I consistently use in my health routine is Organifi. You know that I've talked about them for years now. They are one of the only superfood brands that I use. Everything is incredible quality, organic, all made from the best ingredients, no fillers, no BS, gross ingredients that a lot of other brands have. And the way I stay consistent while using these products is by habit stacking them in my routine. So I'll use the green juice powder that I mix with cold water and I do a squeeze of fresh lemon juice and ice in the morning. And that's this refreshing drink and it's so full of all the essential minerals and vitamins that you need to feel your best. So what I do with the green juice is is I mix it up and then I go sit on my balcony and I listen to a pep talk on Superhuman or I listen to a podcast. I listen to something audible and I sit and I look at the ocean and I drink my greens and I just think about what I'm grateful for. And that is my short, literally a five minute routine that I stick to in the mornings and it just sets me up for the most incredible day. Another one of their products that I use in a routine is lately I've been using the Peak Power pre-workout supplement. It's like a lemonade flavored drink that you have right before you need to really focus or right before you want to work out. And it's really just enhances your motivation and your drive essentially. And we all need that sometimes. I actually haven't had coffee in like seven months. So this is a really, really great tool for me and it doesn't make you crash at all. So I've been using this before working out, taking sips of it while I'm getting ready for the gym, or I also use it right before writing for my book, which takes a lot of focus and discipline and willpower. So that one has been game-changing for me. And the last one I'm going to tell you about is the Organifi Gold chocolate gold drink. And this is like a healthified hot chocolate. It has barely any sugar. It is all clean, incredible ingredients for you. Tastes incredible and it actually helps you sleep. So I have this with hot water and a dash of plant-based milk at night in the evenings while we are watching TV or if I'm reading a book before bed. And this just really, really sets me up for a beautiful nighttime routine. It curbs that nighttime chocolate craving that I know a lot of us have, me especially. So um, yeah, it's it's an all-in-all incredible drink and all of Organifi's ingredients, like I said, are the best of the best. I have shown these labels to my nutritionist, to a doctor, and everyone has told me, yes, use this brand. So if you want to see what the hype is all about, go to Organifi.com forward slash Mimi. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I i.com forward slash Mimi and use the code Mimi to get 20% off your entire order, including sale items and you get a money back guarantee. So it is literally risk-free. Go try it out. And while you're at it, grab the vegan protein powders as well. They are so good in smoothies. Now let's get back to the episode. So you've obviously transformed your life immensely over the past decade and probably even longer, you know, you had a completely different life starting when you were a teenager to now. I'm sure your friend group has completely changed. I have a big belief that you're an average of the five people you surround yourself with most. Tell me about that. Have you lost completely all of those friends or have you stayed in touch with anyone? And do you believe that statement is true as well? Yeah, I do believe that statement. It's funny, like hearing you say that, I'm like, do I have five people even that I spend the most time with? <laughs> like I have like three or four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I got sober, like I really didn't have any friends at the end there. I had a few, 
But for the most part, like my friends were people that I partied with. I liked to hang out with people who were doing the same thing that I was doing. They call them lower companions. And that's not like a knock on anybody that I was hanging out with. But we all kind of gravitated towards one another. So there wasn't really anybody who I wanted to keep in my life and stay in touch with. I felt like I really had to start over. Now I do talk occasionally, like just through Instagram, to some people that I was hanging out with then. And I've reconnected with like my high school girlfriends who I was really good friends with. um, And that's been so nice. I really started from scratch when I got sober. And I think that like I get messages from so many girls and women on Instagram asking about sobriety. And I think there's this fear of being judged and fear of losing friends if they're not drinking. You were kind of alluding to this earlier. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, like, if somebody's going to judge you for wanting to make the best lifestyle choices for you, like, that's not somebody that you should have in your life to begin with. And I know it's hard and, like, friendship breakups are hard and... Um, I think it's hard right now to like find new friends, you know, I I get a lot of questions about that too. And I think people are feeling kind of a lack of connection. Mm -hmm. They are out there for sure. And I think, yes, to your point about the five people, you want to surround yourself with people who want the best for you. Okay. So there's a term that you've used on your podcast, rigorous honesty. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is so your brand rigorous honesty. I love it. And I love to listen to you on your show. I love to follow you. you because of that. And you are especially rigorously honest. (laughs) Uh, You are especially that way when you talk about getting work done. Mm -hmm. Tell me why you're so honest about it. Hmm. I don't really know why I'm so honest about it. I mean, I, I think that when I started doing what I do now. I mean, I never started it with the intention of starting like a quote unquote brand or, or anything like that, but I really was just trying to kind of be of service. Like that was another thing that I learned in sobriety. Like that has to be my mission. (laughs) And when I start making it about me, things get kind of sticky and and uncomfortable. Um, So I just felt like, you know, it started as sharing my fitness and my wellness journey and trying to share helpful things. And obviously in retrospect, some of that was not helpful, (laughs) like the dieting and everything, but that was the intention, you know? Um, I just always kind of felt like I wanted to share the good and the bad. And I think there's such a lack of transparency around cosmetic procedures and everything. And there's so much misinformation about it too. And I just kind of felt like why not like tell people what's out there and what you can do? And I always say like, I sacrifice myself because people have opinions oh, yeah. about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> about that. But of course they do. You know, like I think the first time I really wanted to share was like about threads, you know, yeah. like that is something so many women are getting botched by threads because they see a picture of Bella Hadid that a med spa puts up and says like, come get fox eyes. And then, you know, they have complications and you can get really... Hurt. And the same can happen with surgery. So, like, I always say, do your own research, Mm -hmm. do extensive research. And, like, people DM me. I try to get back to, like, as many DMs as I can. I'm no expert. Um, But, yeah, I just kind of felt like it's so common in L.A. too. And I think there's a lot there. There's a lot. You know, the beauty standards and, like, young girls. and, And I just kind of felt like, well this is what I'm doing and this is what a lot of people are doing and I'm just going to put it out there so that people know whether they want to do it or so that they know that like so many people have help 
and like not to feel bad if that's not like your experience, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I feel like the people that deny it when it's obvious they've had it, it's an ego issue. They mm-hmm. don't want to be seen in a certain way. It's all about the image. They want people to think, oh, look how naturally beautiful I am, you know, and obviously we can allegedly talk about who's had what done, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I love that you're so honest about it and it's so raw and I love following you because of it. And I, I'm not for forcing people to talk about things that they don't want to. And we've had private conversations mm-hmm. about stuff like that too. Um, but it's more the denying thing. If yeah. someone straight up asked me, okay, Mimi, like tell me everything that you've yeah. done. <laughs> you know, um, although I haven't done loads and I'd be fine if I had to, I just, you know, I, I wouldn't deny it. I wouldn't say no, this is completely mm-hmm. natural. Um yeah, I, I agree with you on that. The it's, denying thing is weird. It's very gaslighting. I mean, it is. there are some people where it's like, we literally have eyes. Like, how can you say that it's you didn't? Crazy. But at the same time, like, it used to kind of bother me. And now I can understand, I think, being a public person and having people scrutinize your looks and everything that you do they are kind of in a tough position. So like I'm trying to give them a mm-hmm. little bit of grace where I don't know, like I, I feel like maybe they can't win because I, I think when people have come out and said that they've done things, they kind of get like dragged for that too. Right. But yeah. I do think the denial, I mean, you can just say nothing. Like just say nothing. Don't lie about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're that big of a celebrity, you can check the questions you're going to be asked in interviews and all yes. that jazz. That's a big part of it. I'm like, you have a PR person in the room. They can tell them not to ask that or they can scratch yeah. that from the interview. I think people might start being more forthcoming. Yeah. That's a prediction that I have. Yeah. <laughs> well, so many people are doing it. It's inevitable. It's so I mean, many the Oscars last it. night, I was looking at everyone's face and I'm like, wow, like you, I think having had a lot of things done, I can see them and yeah. other people. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, I don't know. I don't really know what the solution is. And I've said this before because if one of these young stars who's had a ton of work done said, yes, I did go get a ponytail facelift, you know, when I was 20 years old, like what is that going to do for a 14-year-old girl? Yeah. Is she going to want that? Or is she going to think, oh, okay, she looks like that because she had help. Like, I Which just, one's worse? I don't, I don't know. I don't know which one's worse. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had this debate with people on my podcast and a lot of them have said, well, it's better for them to know and then what they do with it is up to them, you know? But then but, if it becomes something that everyone does, then every 14-year-old is going to say, okay, mom, for my 21st birthday, I want to yes. get a ponytail lift. Yeah, I know. And it's getting crazy. Like I was talking to who was maybe one of my hair people last week and he said that he had a client. She was, she just turned 16 and she had lip injections and your parent has to go with you when you're that age. But I was like 16, like that seems so young to me. So your brain's not even fully developed at 16. No, 16 now, 16 year olds now are scary. Okay. I was shopping the other day and I was in the dressing room and there was like four 16 year old girls. And I was like, you guys are like 25 and you're scaring me. (laughs) Like the way that they were talking and the way they looked. I mean, 16 when I was younger was like way way different. Have you seen those videos on Instagram or TikTok and it's like 16-year-olds now, 16-year-olds when I was 16. Yeah, yeah, and when I was 16. Yeah, like so awkward. There's no awkward phase now. They were like full-on adults and I was like, whoa, yeah. this is terrifying. It's crazy. 
So what is the best thing that you've ever done? Your, if you could only... Procedure-wise? Yeah, procedure-wise. The best thing that if you could only have one thing, what would it be? It's so hard to pick just one. I know. Um, I think the lip lift was big mm-hmm. because that kind of balances the entire face. And for people listening who don't know what that is, it's a procedure when they cut... They cut into, I believe, the muscle and the skin at the base of your nose, and they lift that. So that space between your upper lip and your nose elongates as you get older, and some people just naturally have a longer philtrum, it's called. And it can just kind of throw your face off balance, can make you look a little bit older. I had a really long philtrum, and if anybody is listening and they're like, wait, do I? Don't worry about it. But for me, I had like no upper lip and I was putting tons of filler and it was weighing it down and it just like didn't look right. Um, And so I went to Dr. Mascaro in Florida, who's amazing. And they shorten that space and it just gives you like a better balance and, uh, and they can like shape the lip really nicely. But I get a little bit nervous talking about that because you have to go to somebody so good because if you think about it, you're cutting like the lower third of your face, but it's kind of the middle of your face. Like you're putting an incision there. And when anytime there's surgery and there's an incision, there is going to be a scar regardless. And so many doctors do it so badly and it can really mess your face up. Like you just don't want to cut any corners when it comes to that. So there's only like two people that I would say are really good to go to. And one is Mascaro and then Dr. Tally, who's here in LA. That's a good answer. Yeah. What Have you regretted anything? I did threads years ago. And because I bought into it, like I saw the pictures. I mean, this is six or seven years ago, I want to say. So before I had done anything, but having gone through it myself, First of all, it was traumatic. Painful. So painful. I mean, they're shoving like a barbed like suture in your face and then pulling it up and you're awake. And oh, do they numb the area? They numb it, but you can, but feel, you can feel they're everything. like jamming this oh, thing boy. in and then pulling it up. And yeah. I was so swollen. I couldn't like smile or like move my face or anything. And I didn't tell my husband that I did it. And so I remember did like. Did he notice? N- no. Which is men. Literally men. I realized in that moment I can get anything that I want done and he's not gonna notice. (laughs) Slowly over time and they just they won't know. Yeah. Now he like knows about everything. But um he had some event. He was like speaking on a panel and I went and we were kind of like schmoozing before and I remember I smiled and I felt one pop and it was like poking. I mean, it was it was the the worst thing. Yes. And I know surgeons, like friends of mine who, when they go in to do surgery, they have to like take the threads out because they're still there. So for the amount of money that it costs, which is thousands of dollars, the only result really that I got was like swelling for a few weeks. And that was it. That's awful. Yeah. So no one's really doing threads. No No one in Hollywood's really doing threads. No, no. What are people getting done right now that they wouldn't admit? I mean, brow lifts and yeah. upper blepharoplasties are huge. The blepharoplasties Those when have they, blown up like recently, the past couple of years, huh? I feel like every single celebrity that I look at has done it. And, you know, when it's done, especially you can do it conservatively, it's like can be really good to just kind of brighten the eye area. Um, so I think those are huge. I think a lot more people are doing lip lifts. 
What else? Uh, well, buckle fat removal. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one lately, huge. huh? Oh my gosh, it's huge. And I don't like to be that person who's like, I think the person looked better before because I am at the receiving end of so many of those comments. And I'm yeah. like, I don't really care. And like, thanks. What am I supposed to do with that? Whatever you want to do for yourself and it makes you happy, like, great. But I think not a lot of people are true candidates for buckle fat removal. I think it can look good yeah. short term, but... So like I'm in my later 30s and I experienced volume loss in my face and I learned like you want your fat in your face like yeah. when you get older. So I can't imagine what a lot of these women are going to do when they're in their 30s, like later 30s, 40s and beyond when they don't have that fat there. Yeah, um, it's not a good one for aging. No, and no. You, and you have to have like a really specific shape to your face and like a yeah. lot of roundness, I think, for it to look good um, and to like be appropriate. And Mm. I think too many people are doing it because it's trendy and it's instant gratification. And I don't think any kind of surgery should be instant gratification. It's a big decision. And I don't think people take it seriously enough. You have to be in a certain frame of mind and you have to have a certain relationship with yourself to truly go into surgery and still love yourself before and after. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit because you know, surgery has such a, it has such a a reputation, but the realistic, you know, the the reality of it is, in my opinion, is if you go into it already loving yourself, if you go into it already feeling, hey, I'm enough, but I'm living in this body and I'm a human. And, you know, during my time on this earth, I might want to experience, you know, something different with my face. And they're going Mm -hmm. into it with a mentality of I'm happy now and I'll be happy after. I truly believe that's, that's you know, the right way to go through it. What is your opinion on the best mindset to be in before making a big decision when it comes to your face or your body? I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think you have to understand your motive really well. And if you go into it thinking, this is going to change how I feel, that's not the right reason yeah. <laughs> to do it. And that's not to say that you can be insecure about something or want to change something and come out on the other end feeling more confident. Like I did my boobs last year. Yeah. I never cared about my boobs ever. I like small boobs, like fashion, you know, being able to wear low cut things with no bra. But I was at the age where like things needed a little bit of a lift. That was the main thing. And my doctor suggested a small implant. And I was like, okay. You know, since we're doing it, like, if that's going to give me the best result. And holy shit, never been so happy with something. And it, like, unlocked a new level of confidence that I didn't even know that I was lacking or needed. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't need it, and I wasn't lacking it. But I was like, wow, who knew? Like, this thing that I didn't even care about would, like, be so uh, profound. I don't know. So you can definitely, like come out feeling a different way. And I know if people go in for like a reduction too, that can Mm -hmm. be like a life-changing procedure, you Mm -hmm. know? Or if you don't like your nose, like they can all, they can all help you feel more confident or more comfortable in your skin or whatever. But I think that you really have to like manage expectations. And if you think that it's going to like make you happy or something, that's not 
the right frame of mind. Yeah. You need to read this book called Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. It was written in the 60s, so it's an older book, but he's like the father of self-image psychology, and he was a um, plastic surgeon and just the most clever mind, and he started to notice that the people— um, that would come in to get work done, whether that's a nose job or whatever it is, a lot of them would leave still hating themselves. And a lot of them would get this thing fixed on their face that they hated their whole life. And they, they would come back a couple months later saying, I need you to do it again. You didn't change enough, but it was obvious that it had radically changed. And then there was another big group of people that would go in, you know, get their nose done or whatever procedure they're getting, and then leave and feel so happy and, you know, enjoy their life as uh, this person with the new nose or whatever it is. <laughs> so his whole book is about how it's really our self-image that determines how we feel about ourselves and everything else is kind of just, you know, what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's not to, you know, demean how big of a decision it is to change your body, but it's such an interesting book. And it just shows that you really need to be in the right headspace before doing it because you, you're you never going to be happy with yourself mm-hmm. if you're waiting to get the surgery, if you're waiting to get the job, the relationship. And uh, I think you talk about that really well. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, I do notice like I can look the exact same from one day to the next. And if one day I'm sitting there scrolling on social media and I don't know what else, just yeah. not spending my time wisely and not being intentional with it, I can look in the mirror and find things to nitpick, but I can spend the next day putting my energy outwards and thinking about other people and back to like the service component, not to sound like Pollyanna, but you know, it doesn't mean like going to work at the soup kitchen, but it could, but like thinking about other people and getting outside of myself and I can look in the mirror and love what I see. So like, it really is about what you're doing, where your energy is focused. Like, I think that there are so many so many things at play when it comes to like what we see back when we look at ourselves mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with the external. And yeah, I mean, you see it with people with filler all the time. Like they're, I think dysmorphia, yeah. maybe not true BDD, but like this dysmorphic way of looking at ourselves is so rampant right now because of Facetune and filters mm-hmm. and social media. And we're so aware of what we look like and... I think if that's what you're focusing on, you're never going to be satisfied. Yeah. You have to have something else going on besides that. And then you can do the things and like get the tweaks or whatever and be happy and move on with your life and continue like projecting that energy outwards instead yeah. of inwards to yourself. So true. And if you had a friend, let's say, that had way too much filler or work done to their face, like, would you tell them? Because a lot of people can get delusional. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it in my own life. And you ha- like, you don't know what to say a lot of the time because it's their own life, their own decisions. But what would you say to a friend that just got way too much and they want to get more? Or like, would you say anything at all? Yes. Okay. I would say something for sure. Yeah, I don't know exactly how I would say it. But yes, I would say it because I think you know, we're so harsh on ourselves and so easy on other people. And like, it's so easy. I do have friends who are like, oh, I think I need to go back because I need to get like this, this temple is more hollow than this one. And I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) Like I'm telling you right now, you don't, like you're perfect. And they are, you know. And faces are supposed to be uneven, right? Doesn't it look weird if your face is perfectly even? Yeah, I think there was a filter 
I was just telling Chuck about this the other day, actually. I think I've seen this. Because and you everyone, look really weird. Yes, like everybody wants to be perfectly symmetrical, and this filter would show you what you looked like yeah. or what you would look like if you had two of your left side or two of your right side, like if you were perfectly symmetrical. And people looked like so strange. They were mm-hmm. so much more like attractive to the yeah. eye when they have asymmetries. Yeah. So, like I'm pretty sure this eye is a little bigger. Yeah. But it's okay. Wait, which what? I, I'm pretty sure my right eye oh. is a little bit bigger. See, I wouldn't ever. Okay. <laughs> because when you think about it, like, think of something that you're self-conscious of, you know? like Yeah, you. no one else notices, exactly. honestly. Exactly. No like, one when else I notices. leave here and I think of talking to you, it's the whole yeah. thing. It's like— It's the energy as well. It's not just how you look. Yeah, it's, it's like I'm not looking yeah. at your eye. I'm not saying you're self-conscious about that. Yeah. But, like, just anybody, you know, if you think about your experience with— anybody that you encounter and have a conversation with, you're not thinking about like the wrinkle on their forehead. No, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not. you walk away having internalized like their their everything, their energy, their words, their so much more. How they than make just, you feel. Yes. Yes. And how they make thing. you feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you married a high powered creator, Chuck Lorre. He's been on your podcast, The Blonde Files. Mm-hmm. And you've been very honest about being with him, about not being with him and all the in-betweens and you're together now. I just got engaged, so this topic is very top of mind for me. How did he propose? I don't think you've spoken about this. No, have you? I've never spoken about it. He proposed at home. It was on my birthday. And we, I think people might, if they know who he is or look up who he is, or like, I think people would think that he might be more public than he is and more over the top. He's very low-key, like very private. Um, so he wasn't going to do like a big thing. No. Um, he wanted it to just be really private between him and I. So it was my birthday. It was also our one-year, two-year anniversary. He just proposed to me like before we were going out to dinner. Was it um, a surprise? Yes. Really? I kind of knew, yeah. I'm trying to remember how I knew. I think I probably snooped around and saw like the Van Cleef box or something, but I didn't look in it. Or no, I didn't see a box. I think I saw a receipt or something, not for the ring, but like the paper. I saw something where I was like, oh my God. And I think I called my mom in the weeks leading up to it. So I think I kind of knew that it was going to happen, but I didn't know when. And yeah, he just like did it at home before we went to dinner. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so sweet. So Mm -hmm. for Ben and I, our fighting styles have been a challenge in the past. (laughs) Not over, you know, digging here, but have you guys had any challenges with with the marriage and how have you guys navigated that? Mm -hmm. For us, it's our fighting style. What kind of challenge have you had for the most part? I think for he and I, our issue is that we tend to kind of internalize things. So He's very driven, ambitious, solution-oriented, and so am I. And then when it comes to the relationship, we don't have any more of that. Like, we use all of our effectiveness in those ways. And then when it comes to one another, like, we tend to stuff things down, and then they boil over. Um, So that's something that we've been very cognizant of as of late. Even the other day, like something happened before we went to bed and he got kind of pissed off and he went to bed and the next day I was like, what happened? And he was like, well, you were saying this and that and it kind of like triggered me. And I was like, why wouldn't you just like, or I didn't say why, I didn't approach it that way. I think I said, well, in the future, if that happens again, like you can just ask me what I mean and to clarify or something. And then we're not going to bed like angry and in this weird place. So 
Yeah, I think it's just our communication style and or, or lack thereof mm-hmm. that was kind of an issue in the past and it caused things to build up. And when things build up, they get unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's so much easier to just deal with things as they come up and then they don't become issues and like you keep that energy between you clean. Yeah, it's all about communication, I guess, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's interesting, you know, that both of you internalize things. For me and Ben, he internalizes things and I'm the one wanting to talk about it all the time. And then when he is in that triggered state, he's like, whoa, you know, Mm -hmm. relax. So that's definitely interesting. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood before we uh, get into our quick fire round. So what is it really like? I know you, you say that you're not really in it, but what is it really like, you know, at these award shows or in this, um, you know, A-list celebrity event? Is it like it looks on TV or are people nervous? You know, are people gossiping? Are there fights? Like, tell me the ins and outs. I'd love to hear. I think every event is different, but I do remember a few years ago being at an award show. I think it was Critics' Choice and... It was so, it was like a cold, rainy night. It was in an airport hangar. So it was, the venue itself was huge. It was so loud. It was echoey. You couldn't hear the person up on stage. So everybody that was on stage either presenting or accepting an award, like you couldn't really hear. And it was kind of awkward and uncomfortable and cold and just like kind of miserable. And I remember (laughs) Chuck was sick and he had to get up there and make a speech because he was getting some kind of like lifetime achievement thing and nobody was listening because you couldn't hear except for Lady Gaga. He said one thing and she like got up and started cheering to like get everybody going and I was like that's so (laughs) cute. It made me really like her because he was like dying up there and then we went home. We're home by eight o'clock because they start at five Mm -hmm. and we got Chinese food and we watched it on TV and on TV it was dazzling. I mean, looked like the most glamorous thing you've ever seen in your life. And we were like, wow, that is some TV magic. But some of them are like Golden Globes. It's in a different room, so it's smaller and more intimate. And um, when we've gone, you know, it's it is pretty glamorous and you are kind of like, wow, you know, for me, who's just an onlooker, it's very inspiring. And you leave there being like, okay, I want to, like, get to where they are in my own Mm -hmm. life, you know? Even though I know people are like, eh, award shows, like, what do they even mean now? But, you know, it's people who have, like, worked really hard and are getting recognized for that. I think for people who are there as nominees or, like, in the industry, I think it's stressful. I know for Chuck, it's stressful because it's work. For me, it's, like, great because (laughs) I just put on a nice dress Mm -hmm. and, like, go and observe everybody. But in general, like, I think it's different for everybody there. I think some people are stressed and nervous. Some people are like enjoying the free booze. And I remember like feeling like I was at high school prom at the Golden Globes one year because, you know, you're in line for the bathroom with all of these like big stars and they're all kind of gossiping and they're all kind of drunk. And like, it was just, it was fun. That leads me perfectly into the next topic, having it all. A really big theme for this new season of the show is really getting to the idea of what it means to have it all and our misconceptions around that. I personally believe that you can have it all and you can have that amazing relationship, the health, the career, the you know personal development, the mindset. What does having it all mean to you? That's a really good question. I think for me, there have been times when I have 
had it all on paper. And for anybody looking at my life, they would think I had it all. And I felt like I didn't have anything. And I think for me, it comes down to, again, like that spiritual connection. If I'm placing too much emphasis and too much value on those external things, whether it's the relationship, the career, the financial success, like if that is where I'm getting my self-esteem and and getting my value, that's like a precarious place for me to be. And I'm usually Mm -hmm. never happy because it's so conditional. When I am connected spiritually and like, again, back to that, like facing outwards, being interested in other people, thinking about what I can give rather than what I can get. When that's my focus, then I can enjoy like the other things. So I don't know if that's really answering the question. Do you feel like you have it all now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You really deeply feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I had a challenging year last year. Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, and I feel like having gone through that and come out on the other side, I think I've said this on my podcast too, like I just feel this new level of peace mm-hmm. and comfort in my skin and connectedness to that like spiritual part of my life and to other people. I'm, for whatever reason, so much more interested in like other people and and how I can like participate in life rather than in my own life and my own things. Um, and it's, I believe, a result of having gone through that year, you know, it was such a year of growth and reevaluating like, well, I do have the relationship and I do have the financial success and I do have all of the stuff, but why do I feel empty, you mm-hmm. know? And and it was a really tough year of growth. But had I had I sat down last January and said, I want to feel more connected and I want to, I would have like gone to Canyon Ranch, you know, I wouldn't yeah. have known how to get from point A to point B. So I got there in this really kind of convoluted way, having gone through like that challenge but now I think I was able to like reprioritize and realize like, oh yeah, these things are more important to me, you know, like my mm-hmm. my relationships and what I'm doing for other people and that spiritual life and these things that that fulfill me. And then I can enjoy the other aspects of my life. Mm-hmm. So what was the biggest lesson you learned from that challenge last year? Mm-hmm. The separation and then getting back together with your husband. What was the biggest lesson that you learned? I know you went on a solo eat, pray, love kind of trip mm-hmm. to Paris after. <laughs> was that very healing for you? That actually came at not a great time because we had kind of reconciled like the week before I was going. And when I planned that trip, I thought it was going to be my divorce trip. Like yeah. we were about to sign divorce papers. Yeah. And I was like, that is my eat, pray, love. (laughs) And then we went to a wedding together a week before. And I was like, wait, I don't think that I want to go through with this divorce. And then like I left and it was kind of hard timing because I wanted to fix things, but I, it was good. You know, it made me like really evaluate what I wanted. I think I was biking through Normandy on a bike for hours a day in silence, like just with my thoughts. So I think it did prove to be kind of healing and kind of illuminating because when I got back, I was like, oh yeah, I know what I want. Yeah, so beautiful. Okay, let's do a quick fire round. I love a good quick fire. I am so bad at quick fire. They're easy, don't worry. <laughs> All right, the best way to snap out of a bad mood. 
this is not easy for me. Okay. <laughs> um, Meditation, walk, podcast. Hmm. I think it's, I think it depends. Like mm-hmm. different things work for different times. I do love a walk. Mm-hmm. I think walking is really helpful for disrupting rumination, um, anxiety, anger, things like that. Do plants thrive or die in your care? Thrive. Okay. <laughs> it always says a lot about a person. I'm a die, Ben's a, a thrive. Really? Yeah. <laughs> the one thing you unapologetically splurge on? Fashion, anything. Your favorite Fun. brand? Depends what it's for. Okay. But my recent splurges have been Hermes bags. And mm. I know that sounds obnoxious, but actually They're it was like a huge thing. <laughs> it was a big thing for me to be able to buy those for myself yeah. and and not have like my husband buy them for me. That was like a momentous thing in my career. Beautiful. <laughs> for sure. That's that's a great, a great goal mm-hmm. to have for sure. <laughs> a favorite memory from childhood? Going to Cape Cod. We would go every summer. I loved it. Beauty product you can't live without. I would say right now the whole Jan Marini yeah, line. Yeah, you're talking about that a lot. Yes. Yeah, I'm like an evangelist. Great. Evangelical about that, yes. Your favorite way to stay active? Walking or Pilates. Mainly walking. I mean, you can do it anytime, Mm -hmm. really, anywhere. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. I thrive in the morning, and after 9 o'clock, I'm done. (laughs) Me too. The biggest misconception about you? There are a couple. I would say that I am with my husband because of his money or the lifestyle. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That would be the biggest one, I think. Mm-hmm. What makes you feel superhuman? Hmm. There are a lot of things running through my head. I would say my sobriety, first and foremost. That's like the foundation of everything. Mm-hmm. All right, wrapping up. This is, as you know, an episode for the new revamped Mimi podcast. And in this new season, I'm putting a really big focus on how your self-image creates your life and how we should all have a future self in mind. So I'd love to know who is the Ariel Lori future self, your ultimate future self in five years. Who is she? Describe her to me. It's so hard for me to think of the future, you know, because I think like I have had to refocus and, and really just kind of look at right now. But I really love who I am right now. And... That is somebody who is self-supporting, <laughs> financially successful, clear and focused and driven and ambitious, interested in other people and new experiences and like what's more interested in what's going on around me than in myself. And that's something that I want to continue. And just like nurturing, nurturing my real life and mm. not the life that I have as a business, <laughs> which I think a lot of people... It can be hard. You tend Mm -hmm. to focus on that. But I think that like I wouldn't have that if I didn't focus on like nurturing my my real life first and foremost. I don't know if that's if that makes sense. I don't really Mm -hmm. know how to articulate it. I just thought of it. (laughs) No, it's a great, great point. And it's beautiful that you feel you are your future self now. That's the goal, you know? So yeah. The goal is to feel that now, and it seems like you're so satisfied with your life, and you've really worked incredibly hard to create this life for yourself. And it's so beautiful to see, and for everyone listening to to hear you having gone through so much and being in this place now where you are living your dream life. You mm-hmm. really are. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was like, I don't know what else. I don't know what more. Like that's the goal is to to be to want to be your the same version of you in five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, love that. Well, 
wrapping up. Thank you so much, <laughs> Ariel, you. for coming on. This was such a great episode. And it's so fun. I love chatting with you. Me too. Thank you. Oh, wait, where can everyone find you? Oh, <laughs> Ariel Laurie on Instagram. Everything else is connected or linked through that. My podcast is The Blonde Files Podcast. Ariellaurie.com, but and TikTok, go check her out on TikTok. Oh God, too. you have a great TikTok. Things get spicy on TikTok. Yeah, that's where I, that's where I reveal a lot more. <laughs> all right, bye guys. Bye, thank you. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to follow, subscribe, or leave a rating. This really helps the show, and it helps us bring you more of the conversations that you crave. Bye for now.